it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You ever think about quitting? It's the combat of life hammering the snot out of you. Well, stand by, dig in deep, and get ready to get fired up with us. Welcome to the Team Never Quit Podcast, the number one podcast that inspires you to fight on. I'm your host, David Rutt Rutherford, here with Mr. Never Quit himself, Marcus Luttrell. Our mission is to help you embrace the suck of life, to teach you the values of working your ass off, and to interview the most hard-charging people on planet Earth. We know life is hard. It's time for you to suck it up, buttercup, and let us teach you to persevere in every environment imaginable by sharing real-world lessons learned by those who never quit. That's right. It's time, Marcus, for us to help them defeat the well, negative you insurgency me up, in their man. lives. You fire me up. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's roll. Let's roll. Marcus, Marcus, Marcus. Back We're again. back again. It's been allowed. One more not yet outlawed. One more round. <laughs> we haven't, they haven't found someplace else to go yet. not yet being pursued by the law for anything serious. Yeah. And we got a great guest coming on. We're going to talk to uh, Frank DeAngelis, Mr. We D. We do, Mr. D. From Columbine. Principal. A lot of people out there will recognize Columbine for unfortunate, that name for an unfortunate reason, a tragedy that happened. But... That's in Littleton, Colorado, and somebody else comes from Littleton, Colorado. Danny Deeds, my That's brother. Right. Right. I miss you, man, a lot. What a great guy. He's, if Danny is an example of how all, all of them are, live around there, then this is, we're going to have a good time with Mr. D. Because he, he I, I don't think Danny went to Columbine. I think he went to a, a, another high school, Heritage or something like that. But okay, that town's great. There's a memorial for Danny in, in a park out there. Yeah, and a picture Every time it. I go... If I'm out that way, I'll try and swing past there. But it it is something for um, depending seeing where we are in this day and age. I mean, we're still having school shootings, kind of started there, if you will. I I, I well, hate to say really, it like that. Not, it not didn't really, really start just, there. It just got just the, the magnitude of it was like the confluence of when the media really started putting a lot of attention. Yeah, it was the 90s. into it. It was the 90s, man. And the media so started. A lot of people think of that as well. That was the first. Right. Yeah. That's know. a great point. Uh, yeah, national media. It's when everyone started paying attention to national media, like as a same as a TV show. Like you watch, like everybody had that on. It's on the TV, twenty four hour cycle and stuff. Before we uh, before we get off into that, you got a you got a Danny story you can tell. Oh man, I got plenty of Danny stories I can tell. Where to find that? You got a <laughs> really good Danny story you can tell. One time we were at, this is right before nine eleven. We were at SDV school in Panama City, learning how to be uh, sneaky squirrel underwater guys. And you know, Danny, he's <laughs> Super secret diver guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sounds cool. Yeah. Duck on a pond. Always remember that. You think it's calm. When everything's calm on top, you get on the water, it's chaos, man. That was just, Lord, that was the hardest job. Anyways, Danny and I went through that school together. Mm-hmm. And um, 
one night, it was right before we graduated. We had finished one section of the training. We had all went out and had a dinner and, and kind of fell asleep. Or no, no, I'm sorry. All went, went to get something to drink at the local dive bar. And mm-hmm. it's literally, this this is a dive bar. Like diver, the divers go there. It's called <laughs> Down the Hatch, right? It's it's great. It is, uh-huh. man. But it's a diver bar. And um, there's only a handful of frogs. That's such a movie name for a bar, <laughs> yeah, Down right? the Hatch. Yeah, I mean, it gets all kinds of diver memorabilia on there and whatnot. And it's, uh, so we would go in there and, because and, we work with those hand-in-hand divers and, and team guys, we're, we're and that job that we do, it's kind of one team, one fight. So, mm-hmm. and those guys are great underwater. What they do, seriously. But anyways, uh, you know what else is out there is, is the uh, experimental dive unit where they drop you down that tank, that hundred degree water with a thermometer off your butt on that bike <laughs> on the stationary bike, and you're like pedaling your butt off. Let's see what happens. <laughs> see what we can do to this guy a underwater. Human lab experience. <laughs> experiments. Uh, humans, mm, man. Good that. lord, how do we come up with that one? So, oh, okay. So, Danny. Danny had a little bit too much to drink. We carried him outside, and he was in the back seat. He's like, hey, I'm going to go to sleep. I'm tired, man. So he passed out in the back seat of the car. And then me and a couple of my other buddies, uh, Josh and Dan, mm-hmm. I, was, I was using names. I was like, so, yeah, Joshua, Fatty, and Barbara. <laughs> that was, we'll just use their, their nicknames. We go out. We're all looking for him. And we tell him, some of the guys are asking for Danny. I'm like, where's he at? I'm like, oh, man, he's passed out in the back seat of the car. So we get behind the bar and grab a Sharpie marker, right? And mm-hmm. walk, sneak out to the parking lot. And the, the car was backed in uh, out on the outskirts of the parking lot. It was dark, right? So we opened up the, the door, and, and Danny's head is kind of rolled right out there, man. And it was me and three other guys bigger than me, okay? I mean, just uh-huh. some of the toughest frogmen I ever come across. Seriously, hands down. And we're sitting there drawing on Danny's face, kind of taking turns, and we're, we're laughing. And <laughs> this is before camera phones and everything were out, right? <laughs> so we were just kind of doing this. Dude. He woke up like he's he wasn't very tall, right? He's like dynamite comes in small packages and so do grenades. I, uh-huh. That dude, he opened his eyes, man, and we were all standing over top of him. Dude, he had the, we saw we had that marker, and he came out of that car <laughs> like a pissed off mongoose, dude. I mean, it was the dangest thing you ever. You know, he's real good at martial arts and and scrappy, just wiry, god uh-huh. dang. And he laid into me and them dudes so hard, we were we ran all the way back home. <laughs> <laughs> I miss you, Danny. God dang, that sucker. He, oh, he was something. He was. Yeah, he was artistic and very you know, spiritual, and he, he could draw like nobody's. Like he drew on a lot of our most of his tattoos and some of ours, and hmm. and uh, yeah, yeah, just, uh, pure warrior. Right, that whole mindset of art, art on one side and, and violence on the other. Yeah, so uh, he, uh, he he's something, but he's a little too. I guess we got down a rabbit's hole, but anyways, the guest that we have on is from the same town, Mr. D. No, I'm glad we had a chance to talk about Danny for a second. There. Yeah, but um, <laughs> we do have an extremely interesting guest coming on, Mr. D. Frank DeAngelis. But before that, let's knock out a little bit of housekeeping, bud. Roger that. All right, guys, how to listen. You can stream us directly from our website, tnqpodcast.com, or virtually any other podcast app, whether on an iPhone or an Android. Check us out at iTunes, Stitcher, Podacy, CastBox, and Radio Public. All right. And for social media, you can start out by checking out Team Never Quit on all the major social media outlets. Specifically for Instagram on the show, look for Team um, TNQ Podcast. For Marcus, it's Marcus Luttrell. For myself, it's the underscore wizard underscore TNQ. Or just simply type in tnqpodcast.com and you can listen directly to all of our current and past episodes. We have everyone from David Goggins, Mike Rowe, Missy Franklin, Dakota Meyer, Mr. Mark Wahlberg, Sir Robert Young Pelton, 
Mr. Laird Hamilton, Captain Charlie Plum, all the way to Andre Agassi and everybody in between. Truly has been a blessing to have all of these people and more on here and listen to their stories. Mm-hmm. We've have, uh, we also have merchandise in. We have everything from hats to T-shirts. But the crown jewel of, uh, of the website is the listener write-in stories. It's one of our favorite elements to the show, and it's just our listeners writing in and, and literally you know, spilling their guts and talking about their personal never quit stories to help inspire uh, the rest of our listeners. You can find those or submit your own under the menu tab at Share Your Story. All right. Now, without further ado, Frank DeAngelis, Mr. D, retired uh, principal of Columbine High School. Actually, before we talk a lot about that, let's just do a quick overview of the com- uh, the Columbine incident uh, so that those who are not familiar just get brought up to speed real quick. The Columbine High School massacre was a school shooting that occurred April 20th of 99. This, is in, uh, this was there in Littleton, Colorado. It's a school of about 2,000 students. The perpetrators, two seniors, murdered 12 students and a teacher, injured 21 others. The shooters subsequently committed suicide in the school library. At the time, it was the deadliest shooting at a high school in U.S. history, and um, unfortunately, the crime inspired several copycat events. Columbine has become a byword for school shooting. I, that might be a bit extreme to put that in there, but it does, like we mentioned earlier, it automatically conjures up thoughts of, of that subject matter, doesn't it, Marcus? Yeah, absolutely. A horrible thing to have happen when our kids uh, are introduced to violence. Horrible. Um, all right. So talking about, talking about Frank DeAngelis, he, he served as an educator for the Jefferson County school district there since 1979. He started as a social studies teacher between there and becoming a principal, filled the roles of head baseball coach, assistant football coach, Dean of students, assistant principal, eventually becoming principal in 1996. He's a Colorado native. Frank has been involved in numerous professional activities and associations and has received multiple awards for his teaching, leadership, and coaching skills. He retired in June of 2014 after 35 years. Um, they're dedicated to his, his position at Columbine. He's a national-level speaker. Frank has addressed numerous professional and school audiences on the topic of recovery after a school-based tragedy. He's visited, consulted, and assisted school communities across the country following incidents of violence and tragedy. Um, things such as the incidents in Platte Canyon, Chardon, Virginia Tech, Sandy Hook. Presently serving as a consultant for safety and emergency management for the Jefferson County School District there in Colorado and continues to travel nationally, international speaking and consulting. Now, he just released a book that it is titled They Call Me Mr. D, The Story of Columbine's Heart, Resilience and Recovery. Um, in it, he walks readers through the school on the day of the shooting and openly shares the struggles he and the community endured in the months and years that followed. He offers insights on leadership under pressure and on how to rebuild the community after um, the unimaginable happens. Yeah, he's, he's an amazing man. I mean, what he's accomplished and what that, that chaos and pain came blossomed out of that what he's done so as a parent and you know have kids in school I, i can't wait to hear what he has to say you want to bring him up i cannot wait let's do it marcus all right marcus as promised the man is on the line let's introduce him to him to everybody say hello mr d frank thank you so much for coming on here sir and being a part of this i can't wait to hear your story well, it's quite an honor. Thanks for the opportunity, and thanks for all you do. It's sharing these stories that helps other people, most definitely. Thank you. 
Yeah, well, I, th- I think um, as, as we went through before, you know, you've really kind of defined yourself as someone who's invested in being out there and trying to help people through difficult situations. So we're just, I think we're another extension of that. And I'm sure you're going to reach some people with uh, with the words you put out today. So, but before we get started. Absolutely, Mad Minute time. Before we get you in <laughs> and we start talking about that kind of stuff where you like to loosen up your brain matter a little bit and kind of get the juices flowing be able to uh, articulate this entire story. We do that with what's called the Mad Minute. So we're going to fire some random questions at you, and, and you just send it on back, whatever pops in there. You ready? Yep. I'm ready, buddy. All right, Wizard, fire away. All right, what is a hobby or skill you've wanted to have, perhaps for some time, but have not yet learned? Speak Italian. Okay. Good one languages, man. Just <laughs> I would love to speak Italian. My uh-huh. family. He's from Sicily, my grandparents, and uh, it's on my bucket list to go back to the homeland and learn how to speak Italian. Have you done that 23andMe uh, or that any of those DNA searchbacks? I did that, man, and I yeah. tell you, it tells you, it's pretty amazing what they very can specific. find. I mean, very I specific. Yeah. And I'm thinking, if you saw my height and you uh, looked at me, you, you don't know I'm full-blooded Italian. I had no chance. <laughs> stretch, and I'm like five six, so uh, it was fun. We don't need DNA wizardry to track that one down. <laughs> All right, sir. So favorite motivational quote. Favorite motivational quote: You can't determine what happens to you, but you can determine your response. Well, that's powerful. Pretty good one, actually. I'm gonna write that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna borrow that one. No, that is. <laughs> I mean, it is. How many people have come on here and said something along those lines? At least that carried the general thrust of that. Right. That's powerful. That's kind of a whole show right there. And thank you, sir, for coming on. <laughs> That's it. it. That's bad. Wow, interview. you got that one good. You Just have... summed it up right. <laughs> All right. What, in your opinion, is the most difficult high school subject to teach, and why? The most difficult subject to teach in why is math, because even talking to the students and their parents, uh, they tell them, well, I struggled in math and I struggled in math. So there's that perception. And there's a reason I got into social studies, taught social studies, because I had a hard time teaching the math. And so Hmm. I think that's really a difficult thing. And I know even as a principal, when I went in to observe uh, classes, I'd walk in there, and I, I was fine with Algebra 1, Algebra 2. When you start getting into some of that calc stuff, boy, it was like a foreign language. I actually, there was uh, people that worked with the uh, space uh, program and things like that, and really a rocket scientist, but I'd put them in front of a group of ninth graders and tried to have them teach algebra. Struggled because he was so smart, but he couldn't relate it to his kids, and I think that's a tough thing for teachers to do. Oh, a powerful skill, yeah, being able to actually teach what you know. No doubt. You know, we just had, we just talked to a guy named Mario Romero, who's a former team guy who, um, let's see, he's in the astronaut program with NASA. He's down here in, in Houston. But prior to that, he earned a degree in mathematics. And he was talking about how, and this really s- struck home when you started talking about this, how in the beginning, he grew up in a household where everybody believed that they were bad at math. And they accepted this self-limiting belief. And he held this all the way through until, I don't know, maybe he was about 25 or so when he went back to school. And then he finally addressed it and then discovered that he was capable at math. It was, it highlighted the power of um, that, that conception, that oh, misconception. Okay. I mean, he had to start at the basics, he, he, the classes that teach you three plus three and, and to teach you how to open the math book kind of classes is where he, he, he kind of jumped off on. 
And I think what makes math so difficult is what you two are just talking about. Like I said, I taught history, so if someone missed a period of time of history, they can still do all right. Same thing with writing and English, but math, boy, if you do not get Algebra 1 concepts, you're going to have a hard time going on to Algebra 2 and then calculus and things Mm. of that. But there is, I think, Wizard, what you talked Mm. about is that self-fulfilling prophecy that I can't do it, I can't do it. And I used to tell kids all the time, if you think you can or you can't, you're right. And I think that's an important message. <laughs> that's another great saying right there. I think that he's going to be full of these. Marcus, anyone have a question? We've got to get out of this rabbit hole. Yeah, all right. Um, uh, if you could play out one person's life in history, who would it be? Abraham Lincoln. And the reason I felt he was probably our greatest president from the standpoint that he kept our country together back in 1860-61. I mean, we were looking to secede, the North and South secede, but he used mm-hmm. his skills to bring us together. And we're the United States today because of his strong leadership. Yeah, we are. Absolutely. Yeah. It's important for our leaders to realize that, man, look, if we're one big family, not everyone, not all the kids are going to be, you, know, you make the kids happy, the wife's not going to be happy. You make the wife happy, then wife's not happy first of all no one's going to be happy happy wife happy life i've learned that one myself but looking at that and, and having the wherewithal to bring us all together and makes him makes for a good uh leader yeah i think you'd be hard pressed to find a more beloved and respected president than that it's a great choice probably mine and all hated right. remember because doing all that he was hated the worst i mean it, it cycles right sometimes man you're gonna have to go through the hard stuff and people are just gonna be like man that's because you have to take it well uh what was it f f scott fitzgerald said uh show me a hero and i'll write you a tragedy so that's right you can't have one without the other all right if you were secretary of if you were the u.s secretary of education or someone of similar influential capability what one topic would you add to school curriculum and what one would you throw out the one that i would add is creating schools that include an inclusive environment welcoming for everyone that was the biggest thing that I saw at Columbine. Uh, one of the things, it's easy to walk down the halls of Columbine High School and everybody will high five and say, we're Columbine, we're family, we're rebels. But when I became a better principal is when I walked outside the doors and there were kids in the smoking pit and there were kids at the skate park. And I said, guys, what are you doing? How come you're not in class? And they said, do you even know who we are? And I said, yeah, I knew their first names, but they hmm. said, there's kids at your school and they said, my school, that they don't care less if we ever show up. We don't fit in this little family thing of yours. And that's when I learned that if a kid does not feel welcome, if a kid does not feel safe, if a kid is hungry, you could have the best curriculum program out there. They're not going to learn. And so we can't underestimate the power of that inclusive environment, making everyone feel welcome, reaching out. And one of the things that if I had to do it as Secretary of Education, it's all this standardized testing that kids are required to take. I'm not sure mm-hmm. if that's helping with the learning that's taking place. Sure. I mean, we took, you know, a lot of it just kind of alienates them, right? They're scared to take a test or if they're not good. At, I mean, you know they're intelligent. There's a, that's a, you can see. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to be in there, more or less. I mean, and, and some of them are extremely bright. I mean, it, it, it takes – how, it's, it's all about how they learn, right? And you're right, it can scare the mess out of you, if those, those tests. But it, they just need to know that it shouldn't. It's just kind of like, hey, when we're trying to see where you're, we're just, in, in order, 
it should, in reality, the test should see exactly where they're at, and then we go from there. Not, hey, you're a dumbass. Keep your ass. You know, throw you away. <laughs> you know, it's not that you're not. <laughs> we I think, teach it, you to do anything. Is it realistic to really expect to have a one size fits all program or curriculum that does not disenfranchise certain people? Is that even possible? See, and, yeah, and and I love that question. And one of the things I tried to do when I was principal, and I know uh, you mentioned about being an algebra and geometry but you put you have a 30 kids trying to learn well some kids can learn textbook you know fundamentally do well but others struggle but if i created a class called construction geometry so basically oh yeah there you go they can build things and they have to use geographical or geometrical skills but it's how they learn they learn differently and that's the most i think the most difficult thing for teachers and there's this phrase called differentiated learning. You have 30 kids in there, and mm-hmm. I see so many teachers that try to teach one way, and it's a way to reach out to all of them. Some kids learn differently. How do you include them in that learning? And I think that's the most important thing is reaching out to all kids. That's one of the things I tried to do as a principal, because a lot of times we would have certain teachers, you know, English teachers saying, well, my kid's right, and we need to do this, and I'm working harder than the math teachers. Math teachers are saying, well, you don't have to worry about this. And what I did is we really had math across the curriculum. And so we would develop lessons where the English teachers had to incorporate math so they can see the tie-over, integration. And then we saw, even in physical education, I think a lot of times physical Mm. education teachers get the bad rap is all they do is roll out the ball and watch them play. That doesn't happen at Columbine High School. I mean, they're doing taking heart rate where they have to calculate that. So you incorporate math. You find if someone's interested in something, they'll learn. And I think that's Mm. if you get those concepts to motivate the kids. Having fun. Yeah, well, find you that know, yeah, if you're having fun, man, really you're learning. Yeah. Show them how this is really useful other than just passing a test. All right, Marcus, hit him. <laughs> uh, oh, what was your high school mascot? Uh, the Raiders. We were the random Raiders. All right. If you had to select one of the – you're going to love this. If you had to select one of the seven dwarves from Snow White to handle nuclear disarmament – Nuclear disarmament. This is why I'm not a talking head on CNN, right? Nuclear disarmament negotiations with North Korea. Which one would you pick? Doc, grumpy, happy, sleepy, bashful, sneezy, or dopey? I would say happy. And because why? I truly believe it's all about positive. Don't dwell upon the negative, but build upon a positive. So I would find a way to incorporate that in and trying to get things done. I feel in our country today, one of the issues is people are so strongly opinionated that even though they have their own ideas and they're passionate about it, they don't take time to even think to listen to someone else. And, and who knows, they may be closer mm-hmm. in their philosophy than they think, but they never take that time to find out. How do you teach, how do you teach that to kids? Maybe the adults in this country could learn from that lesson. You know, one of the things when I had a conflict and I called students in for conflict resolution, I said, each of you are going to have a time to have this conversation. Usually it starts out where people are interrupting and we set the parameters and just saying, you know, he or she's going to get an opportunity to talk, share their feelings. You're going to have an opportunity and you're going to talk this out. And a lot of times I walk out of the room and said, you two are going to walk. You're going to work this out. and I'm going to come back in 10 minutes and you're going to figure out a way to get it done. And it hmm. seemed to work fairly well. Hey, man. 
All, All right. right. Well, that's the Mad Minute. Great job. Thank you. I mean, I'm going to learn more than the Mad Minute <laughs> did. <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of it kind of seems like an entertaining thing, but I honestly think the Mad Minute ends up showing possibly more about the guests than anything that they have can um, can say during the rest of the discussion, or at least it highlights things that you would never have unearthed. So. Thank you for that. Oh, um, yeah, man. It gets you thinking about the stuff you don't think about and what you mm-hmm. learn from it, especially when you got to tell it to somebody. So good job. With that being said, ultimately we get in here for you, the, the meat and potato of it. The, if you would, if you wouldn't mind sharing one of your greatest never quit stories or stories to our listeners. One of my greatest quit stories or not quit stories is uh, staying on as principal at Columbine High School for 15 years. And basically what happened is we had that horrific event uh, event on April 20th, 1999. Mm -hmm. And everything I went through, originally I made a promise to the classes of 2000 to 2002. I would be their principal because I said it was going to be a tough road and there was going to be a long road to recovery and there was going to be some good things, but there was going to be some tough times. And I promised them if you came back to Columbine, I would be with them every step of the way. And so I knew I had a three-year commitment, but I also had 10 more years in which I could, I had to work. I couldn't even think about retirement. And so it was the summer of 2001, and we're getting ready for the new school year. And all of a sudden, I have to make a decision. And I can remember before the students came back, and I, have a gold, I had a golden retriever and decided to walk my dog, and I came to the conclusion that I can't leave. And part of it It's going to go back to an event that happened two days after the tragedy that probably changed my life. I'm a person of faith, Mm -hmm. and I can remember going down to the church, and I didn't want to go down there. I'm a cradle Catholic. didn't want to go down to the church, and Father said, Frank, you need to come down here. And so reluctantly go down to the church. There's about 1,200 people in the sacristy, and all of a sudden he brings a bunch of my students who were part of the youth group up on uh, the altar And they pray, but he whispered something in my ear, and he said, Frank, you should have died that day. You encountered the gunman, but somehow he saved you. Now, he's got a plan for you. Now, you need to go rebuild that community. And he said, many times, difficulties are really blessings in disguise. And he said, you're going to question your faith, but you got to live by faith and not by sight. And he said, he's going to grab you every time you fall. He's going to grab you by the hand and help you get through it. Well, it's coming upon me to make a decision whether or not to leave Columbine, and I kept those words that Father Ken said to me kept resonating. I didn't rebuild that community. So it was at that point that I made a promise to the Columbine community and all the kids. I said I was going to be their principal until every kid who was in the elementary school graduated. I wanted to be there. Even though kids that were in Columbine High School were deeply impacted, there were kids in our community that were impacted, and I wanted to Exactly. So I was getting ready to retire in 2012. All the kids that were in kindergarten had graduated, and all of a sudden, a parent called up and said, Frank, we need to meet. And I said, what's going on? They said, you can't leave. And I said, well, I made a promise to stay until kids graduate. They said, you don't understand. My kid was in a first year of a two-year preschool program, so you need to stay a couple more years. So I stayed (laughs) And I think that was my biggest accomplishment, to be able to stay uh, with all those kids. And when I retired in 2014, every kid that was in these schools in the Columbine area, I was their principal. So I felt I fulfilled that promise that Father Ken asked me to do back in 1999. 
Well, let's talk about why that was so challenging. Um, in researching this, you had made at least a comment that I saw about how you were having uh, trouble dealing with some post-traumatic stress issues. You were having flashback type of um, events while walking around the school, just things that took you back to that event. Can you can you talk to us why it was difficult and how you overcame that? Well, and a key point, Wizard, is the fact that my faith was important, but it was interesting. I was giving given advice. Someone said, Frank, if you seek counseling, that's a sign of weakness. And they also stated that you better not let anyone know because they're going to deem you unfit for duty. Well, fortunately, within 24 hours of the shooting, I received a phone call from a doctor hmm. my mom worked for. But more importantly, he was a Vietnam veteran. And he said, Frank, I came back from Nam. I never got the help I needed. He said, I had flashbacks. I never got that help in dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. It cost me personally and professionally. And he said, if you don't help yourself, you're not going to be able to help others. And so I got into counseling. And I'll give you one brief example. When I came back into this building to start the new school year, um, it was a month, or it was actually July of '99. And that was two months or three months after the tragedy. And I remember walking out of my office, and every time I walked out, out in the hallway, I saw the gunman coming towards me, and I saw the shotgun, the barrel of the shotgun being pointed at me, and I had to run back in my office. And I said, how am I going to be able to be the principal of this school if I can't even walk out in the hallway, if I needed to show strength for others? And this is mm -hmm. where my counselor stated, Frank, as long as you walk out of that hallway and all you hear are those gunshots being fired or see the shotgun being pointed at you, you're never going to be able to continue. If all you're going to remember is that kid that you witnessed came upon where his face was shot off, you're never going to be able to continue. What you need to do is you need to reset that program in your head that when you walk out of the office, you need to see Lauren Townsend instead of lying in a pool of blood playing volleyball. You're going to have to envision Isaiah Schultz as a poet as lying in that library killed. You need to envision high-fiving you. So I had to change that mindset. And now all of a sudden when I walked in, I didn't see these kids dying lying in a pool of blood. I envisioned them living their lives. And that was probably the key thing for me. And one of the things that I learned is I still I'm in counseling now 20 years later, and I realize when events happen, you know, I have my counselor on speed dial. And I think that is so important to me. Getting counseling it is, isn't a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. And if it wasn't for my counselor and the mental health help I had, I would never have been able to fulfill that promise of staying on for 15 years. Well, we talked about this a couple mm -hmm. other times uh, here in the recent past about guys like us getting counseling. I've had so many people say, well, Frank, I talked to a counselor. He didn't help. I said, find the right one. And then the thing that they don't have an answer for, I said, if you broke your arm, would you allow your husband or wife or friend to fix it? They said, no, that's crazy. And I said, why would you not talk to someone who has been trained to deal with some of the trauma that we're going through? And then one of the things exactly. that stuck out in my mind is someone once told me, you know, Jesus is writing your story. Why do you keep trying to steal his pen? And that was so powerful. Right? That was so powerful to me. So <laughs> that's so true as far as getting you. I mean, we were just talking to Flo Groberger, the Medal of Honor winner, about this the other day, and he was talking about how he completely disregarded. 
he was not interested in any kind of counseling immediately afterwards. But what got through to him was somebody who had been through that situation, was able to talk to them from a place of understanding and how critical that is. Why do you think that it's so, I have two questions, is how do we as a society get past this stigma of seeking help, you know, for mental health issues? And then also, I would like to hear, it sounds like the way you got through this, getting a little deeper into it was a reconditioning um, when you encountered those situations. Could you explain a little bit more um, specifically how that process works? Maybe give deeper understanding? Well, and I think no one wants to be told, hey, you're screwed up. You better talk to someone. You know, and I think one of the things that sets emotional triggers is when you go up to someone and say, I know how you're feeling. Now, you two can talk because you've been through so much together. People that were in Columbine that day could come up and say, Mm -hmm. I know how you're feeling. When I call a principal from Parkland after the shooting, I said, you know, Ty, I know what you're feeling. We're there. But when people from the outside come up and tell us what we need to do, we struggle with that. And one of the things that I learned is, and this is where I think you get people to follow you. When I, I walk into an auditorium with teachers or kids and I said, I don't know about you, but I'm not sleeping at night. You know, I'm having nightmares. I have no appetite. I don't know if this is going to help you, but I'm talking to someone professionally. And I'll tell you what, is it making all the difference in the world? So it's not Mm -hmm. telling them what to do, but sharing your story. And all of a sudden you see people nodding saying, God, I I thought it was only me. And so I think it's being that role model, not telling Mm -hmm. them what to do, but just being able to show, you know, what those actions are. And I think that's so important. And then the training piece of it is, uh, it's amazing, a simple technique that I learned, it's called touchstones. And last year, I'll mm-hmm. use Parkland as an example. Last year, whenever my phone starts blasting, saying you're in my thoughts and prayers, uh, if you need anything, and then the media starts calling, that's what happened last year after Parkland. And I see all mm-hmm. this footage of what's happening. It took me back to 1999. And all of a sudden, a a tactic that I used or a strategy I used from my counselor is I have two medals around my neck on a necklace, and I started grabbing those, stating, this isn't April 19th, 99, this is 2014. And it got me Mm -hmm. back to where I needed to be. It's those little skills, breathing skills, and I, I couldn't do it without that. And I wouldn't have been able to fulfill that promise. And so I think just talking to people, letting sharing your story, because there's others that feel the same way. I do want to share a story with you. I, Please. I encouraged those kids that were out at the smoking pit, and I said, I need a favor. I need for you to get all the, your friends that feel the same way, and we're going to meet in the auditorium. I said, all rules are off. You can say what you want to say, language you want to use. And they told me things I didn't want to hear that I needed to hear. So I told them to come mm. to the next assembly. I said, why would we bother coming to an assembly? All you do is you recognize the top students, the athletes, kids in band. Where do I fit in? I have body piercings. I have tats. I don't fit into this little thing you call family. So I came up with an idea, and it was probably the thing that changed the environment at Columbine more than anything we've ever done. I gave every kid, staff member, uh, parent who walked in this little carabiner that said, we're Columbine. So it's my turn to talk to the kids at the end of the, towards the end of the assembly. And I said, each of you represent a link at Columbine High School. And some of you excel in the classroom. Others excel in certain areas. But remember, it's the individual person that makes Columbine so special. But I said, what's going to make us strong is when you take 400 links, 400 individuals and all your unique qualities. Now you become the 
the class of 2017. You become stronger and you're connected to someone. But I said, what is going to make us stronger as a family at Columbine High School moving forward is when we take 400 links from the class of 2017, 16, 15, 14, and we become one. And that chain becomes unbreakable. And so I said, I'm going to put on the song, We Are Family. And I said, by the conclusion, we're going to find a way to come together as one. I wasn't sure if it was going to work, but the song was over, and they're holding up that chain, saying, hmm. chanting, we are Columbine. So then when it was over, I said, now here's what I want you to do. I'm going to put this chain, and it's still in the hallways at Columbine High School. I said, there's going to be days you're fighting with your boyfriend, girlfriend. You may lose a parent or grandpa, but remember, you're always going to be connected to someone, and don't ever forget that. And so then when the seniors graduated, I gave everyone a link saying, even though you're leaving, you're always going to be a part of Columbine High School. And that one event probably did more to bring our school together than anything that I had did over that time. That's a massive piece of work being a school administrator, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, you know, people just say that and they they say, well, they get focused on maybe teaching individual uh, subjects, but... You are responsible for just the health of the school's society in general, the leadership of all these teachers who then are, you know, in charge of, you know, uh, training up these young people and getting them on the right path. That's a massive job. Can you now we have not got into the topic of exactly this, the scourge of shootings and massacres that we have and getting any of the nuts and bolts on that. But maybe how we can break into that is. Can you talk to us about how the job as a school administrator has evolved, you know, over, say that, you know, these, we're in the second uh, decade here of the 21st century and how that differs and, and then maybe that can carry us into talking about uh, this big subject of these tragedies. Well, I think back to 1999, the only drills we did in 1999 were fire drills. And I'm sure on the West Coast in California, they did earthquake drills or on the eastern plains you did tornado drills but those were the only drills we did and now as administrators i think not only and teachers not only do you have to teach the subject matter but you need to do different things where kids feel safe and from the time kids enter second grade they're doing drills some type of emergency drill whether it be lockdown lockout type of things uh, run hide and fight And so that's a part of the curriculum. And it's not to scare people, it's to prepare people. And I think that's the most important thing that we're living in our society today. And not only are these acts of violence occurring in schools, but in movie theaters and churches. And so it's just a a matter of awareness. And it's how we relate that to students. And the next thing that I think, Wizard, that you touched upon is I think our kids today are coming in that have more needs than ever before. And I think it's part hmm. of how the, you know, I was fortunate when I grew up, I'm a baby boomer. I grew up, my mom was at home until my brother and sister and I, you know, left to go to school. And, and we had that family structure now because of the way the family structure is set up. Uh, we see so many things that have changed differently. I was amazed towards the end of my career. I saw a lot of our kids that were being raised by aunts and uncles, grandparents. And so again, the point I made earlier is if kids don't feel safe, if they don't feel wanted, it doesn't matter what curriculum they have in place, they're not going to learn. And so I think that's one of the major changes. And the other thing Mm. that has changed drastically, and as parents, I'm sure you realize, social media is such a major part of our kids' lives today. And as adults, 
whether it be teachers, parents, we need to know what our kids are doing with social media because it really is having an impact on their lives, both positive and negative. Oh, sure. First of all, the school environment is for when our kids are supposed to go there and learn, not learn how to do damn drills from getting shot at. All right. This all this isn't on y'all. This is on parenting us as parents. I mean, you should need to back it up because if they're miserable in school, that means they're miserable at home, probably. And, and it all correlates. It's it's the same. It's I mean, I would take our teachers. You guys are parents. The teachers are parents, too. They love kids. I mean, it's it's discipline. It's training your your Children, what's right and what's not. My father would always tell me, he's like, look, I'm not your friend. I'm your father. I never knew what that meant until I became a parent, which means with I still have the friends, same friends I've had since kindergarten. And I do stupid things with my friends, like real on purpose. We, like, we go out and, and do dumb things on purpose, which means I can't be my kid's friend because I want to do dumb things with him. And I won't discipline the way him and them that I should. I mean, the most dangerous thing on this planet is an undisciplined human mind. And it all starts at the house. Anything you don't train your kid to do, somebody else will. I mean, I, and, that, and that's anything and everything. Like, I don't like snakes, but I, 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 we have them around out here. I live in, so I know I teach my kids how to deal with them. Same way with guns, same way with cars, same way with anything. We teach our kids how to dress, teach them how to do everything else. But so I, I know some parents won't teach their kids self-defense. I'm like, well, you, why? Because you, you, you don't think some human's going to attack them? Self-defense means they can defend themselves against anything. Animals, cars, refrigerator falling on top of whatever it is. It's all how much time and effort you want to put into your kid before you send them out for somebody else to do that. And if we're not doing it, then I mean, could you imagine if an Back in the 1990s, if a 10-year-old kid had this iPhone in his possession and was in a room with a telephone, he could have played God. This thing tells the future, all right? And it, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's unbelievable, man, how much, <laughs> how much reach they have. And that's, that's the whole thing, man. It's just they have way too much information and not enough life experience. <laughs> so when something happens to them, they throw down an emotion that somebody who's 40 or 50 sh- should be doing or, or vice versa. And it's, it's, it's all... They get upset about some kid talking about them in, high, in a high school in a different state. Like, it literally affects people when people say something bad about them on social media. But, I mean, you have no idea who that person is anyways. I mean, what do you care? What, I mean, do you really care what they say? And you're, the, the strongest thing about us, our skin, is literally the best body armor for words because they, they can't penetrate that, man, that emotion, everything. If you lit somebody, unless they can get into your head and physically touch your brain, they can't break you mentally. Never let anybody's perception of you become your reality, especially if they don't know you. And that's the toughest part about being kids. And when you're growing and you're kind of coming into your own, trying to figure out what you are, if you got people, kids are kids, they're going to, no matter how much you teach, they're going to be mean. They just, a lot of times, even if they can't help it, they say the wrong things. It's not by on purpose. Sometimes it just hurts people's feelings and everyone's gotten up on edge and got their defenses up that no one apologizes for anything anymore. My grandparents, my grandmother would say people being ugly, like me just being mean to be mean. Well, that's what kids do, but all the adults and everybody else seem to be doing that as well. And it's kind of incumbent upon us to just take a step back, relax, take a deep breath. Hey, look, man, we're, we're all in this together, right? If we don't start teaching our kids the right way to do things, then who's gonna, because, reality is reality. No matter how much we church it up, I mean, I, people call them lawnmower parents. I, I think it's more like a stunt parent because anything bad fixing to happen to them, we'll step right in the front and take the hit and be like, it's all right, you get it later. Well, but go ahead. And a good thing I tell parents, I used to tell them, 
our kids have this mountain to climb. And what we want to do as parents and adult is move the mountain as opposed to giving them the skills to scale it. Because once they go out on their own, and I even had parents say, Frank, you know, I'm worried my son or daughter's going to college. And I said, the only thing you can do is hope that you instilled values with them when on a Friday night or a Saturday they're with their friends, they're going to have to make a choice. And hopefully they have those values that they can choose right from wrong. And I said, the only other thing you can do is possibly follow them to college. They said, well, we're thinking of moving into their dorm room with them. I said, good luck. Dear oh, Lord. Yeah. Oh my God. You know, that's it's unfortunate. Well, you, you had just mentioned, um, you know, these kids have more needs than ever before. And when you said that, in my mind, the thing that I connected to was a topic that you hear floating around out there a lot or an explanation for current events. And that's decline of the traditional family unit, if you will. Um, what role? So would you say that that is a major player in the reason why they have those needs? And, and furthermore, what do you see as the ideal relationship between the school's responsibility in development of the child and the home uh, life development of the child? I think the key is when I think back to my childhood, I think Sandlot, you know, kids went out and played, all the neighbors knew each other in my neighborhood, all the families knew each other. And if I got in trouble down the street, you know, they would take care of it. And we, but now because of the, the fast pace, that's not happening. And the most important thing I feel is one good adult. And I mean, finding that adult that can relate to a kid. And, you know, one of the things we talked about, whether it's school, you know, coming from school, and it's great, even parents who are fantastic parents, to have that adult at school that they can trust, whether it be someone that works in the building, facility area, food service, bus drivers, it's those adults. And what I used to tell our teachers, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I think it's just that family structure. And what I would love to see is, and we've uh, we've talked about this briefly, is homes need to support parents and parents need to support schools. And so many times there's that conflict in between, and it's they're about all of our kids. And I think that's the most important thing is, is to find out during this hustle and bustle that they still need to take time. There's nothing, and nothing drives me crazy when I go out and about and I'm with my wife and we're in a restaurant and it's family or husband and wife, and they're sitting there texting the whole time as opposed to sitting down and carrying on that conversation. And I mm-hmm. think my fam, my I'm so fortunate my mom and dad are still alive, but I can remember it was one of the holidays last year, and here's my nieces and nephews and grandkids, and what my parents said, everybody put their cell phones over here, that we were for, not forced, but we had that opportunity to talk. And I think as parents so many mm-hmm. times – it's to a point in high school, they're saying, well, they're old enough, they're on their own. I said, you don't understand. Your kids need you more now in high school than they ever did before. You need to be that support system. And when parents used to call up and say, Frank, can you tell my daughter she can't wear that to school? And I said, you're the mm. parent. Well, they may not like me. Like, mm. They have enough 17-year-old mm. friends. You need to be their parent. And I think that's important. Well, you're in a unique position as an adult and – obviously an intelligent one at that, who has a direct connection to the generations that are coming up on a database basis and just see exactly what they're doing. Whereas a lot of the world, I mean, I don't have children, for example, right? I don't know what kids are thinking about necessarily. I don't know how they're conducting themselves. And I can come up with theories about why they might do what they do and why uh, 
I'm kind of blind to that. So you're in a very unique position where you are that you see both sides as a person who has kind of a more holistic view of what's going on in the lives of these young people. I'm going to, this is a quote that you've said before. I think people are looking for one thing that's going to stop school violence. Well, it's more than one thing. Do we need tougher gun laws? Do we need more sensible gun laws? Yes. But also we need to look at mental health. We need to look at threat assessment programs. We need to look at the impact social media is having on our kids. So as a person who has this perspective, what do you feel is the solution to this? Uh, where do we need to be looking? Because when you listen to the media, you're getting a, a mixed bag of, and you don't know what you can believe and not believe. Well, and one of the things that really worried me, especially after Parkland, is when you had people coming out and some politicians stating that if we have tougher gun laws, I can guarantee you there's never going to be another school shooting or act of violence. And that's one piece to the puzzle. And all you have to do is look to Columbine High School. There was a loophole where the girlfriend of one of the killers purchased a gun legally through the Tanner Gun Show in which there was no background check. That was a loophole that they created or they got rid of. But I also saw the two gunmen that purchased guns illegally. And so for anyone to get up and state, if we do this one thing, there's never going to be another school shooting. I struggle. And it scares me. Mm -hmm. And that's why I said the piece of the puzzle. And I get worried when I go around the country or I hear people stating we're going to cut funding for counseling social workers in schools because there are kids that have needs and you need to provide support. And then the thing Mm -hmm. of the social media piece is parents – you know, because I think you know what your kids are doing in their lives and you're going to be able to follow that. But we need to all be a part of it. We need to take responsibility. When people used to say to me, Frank, what are you going to do? I said, what are we going to do? And one of the positive things to come out of Columbine is we are working together. We are working together as educators, parents, police officers, first responders, counselors, because the most important thing is they're all of our kids. And I think that's the component mm-hmm. that is so important. And, and why people worry is if they can figure out the one thing that is causing these acts of violence or mass shooting, then you just eliminate it. But there's not. And so we have mm-hmm. to encompass all of these things, but never give up hope. And, you know, I, I say this all the time, and I, I think you can figure out I'm an optimist, but we talk about these shootings that have continued to happen, but how many have been stopped because of things we're doing differently now that were not in place? And so I think that's the important. I don't Building know how many. Can you, can you talk to that? I don't know. Unfortunately, what ends up happening is we continue to hear the Parklands and the Santa Fe, but what the media does not let us know is how many have been stopped. They don't share, you know, that there's been thousands of potential school shootings that have stopped because we are informing our kids. One of the most important things that we we cannot underestimate is I used to tell kids at Columbine, if you see something, say something, hear something, say something, and it was apparent from Parkland said, in addition to that, we need to do something. And I would be willing to bet in any schools around this country Students know for, before adults do a lot of times because of social media. And so mm-hmm. they need to have the means. And, for example, in the state of Colorado, we have a program called 
safe to tell, which is a 24-7 anonymous tip line. So these kids, if they see something posted on Instagram, Snapchat, that they have the power to tell people so we can look into it. Because I don't think we can any longer state that, well, someone's only joking. I think we need to have the mentality that we need to take care of each other. We need to value life. And that's how we we got a chance of combating some uh, this against violence. Okay, so to distill that down for the parent who's listening, what should they practically do to make to try to make a positive impact? Well, I think one of the things is being being there. I think so many times, and I saw this a lot of times at Columbine. You know, Columbine social social economic. You know, is middle upper middle class, and I think so many times, and not only Columbine. But I think parents at times feel, you know, by buying things for kids, that's showing love and that's part of it. But just that downtime, being visible in a kid's life is so important, finding the time during this this busy schedule. But the other thing is, I think, educating yourself. I was at a conference and someone asked a group of parents, how many of you allow your kids to take their cell phone to bed with them? Ninety five percent allow it. And they said, well, you don't, hmm. the parents are saying, well, you don't understand. They need to charge their phone. And the guy said, well, why don't you have them charge their phone in your, in your bedroom or in a main office? And some uh-huh. and lady said, well, they use it as an alarm. And the guy said, I'll give you 10 bucks. Go buy yourself, your kid an alarm if that's the reason. But how many as parents, grandparents, educators, you check the history on your kid's phone? Because a lot of them are going to dark places. And at least you can reach out and help these kids if they're going there. And, and you know, and one of the things, and it's, it's troubling to me when I actually had a parent tell me, Frank, I'm concerned my son is involved in drugs. And I said, well, why do you think that? Well, you know, his appearance, address is going down. He has new friends. His grades are dropping. I said, well, have you been in his room? Well, no. Why? Because he has a padlock on the door. And I said, well, that's a sign that (laughs) he's hiding something. And they said, but Frank, you don't understand. He has civil liberties. I said, time out. He's living under your roof. That door comes off the hinges. You need to be a parent to protect and help him. And that's where I think these parents sometimes want to be the kid's best friend as opposed to being parents. Padlock on the door. That was. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Imagine. (laughs) <laughs> I don't even know what to say about that. What what do we just uh do we now have more bad parents than ever or what has changed? Have things changed? Why are so many parents why do we have this? I don't think we have parents that are bad. It's just, you know, it's just keeping up at a fast pace. And I think before you stated if someone said something, you know, and bullying, bullying, well, bullying occurred. I went to Catholic school, bullying was occurring, but usually when you hit home now, it's just widespread. And I think we need to educate our parents. I know as an edge, as a principal, even as I got older, I made sure that I understood what was involved in these kids' life. And I would bring kids in and say, you know, as crazy as this sounds, you need to teach me how to, you know, how to use Twitter. You need to teach me how to do this, at least uh, so I can stay involved. And so many times mm. people feel parents and i think the thing they cannot underestimate is just being visible in their kids lives their kids need to know and the other important thing is was i I a bad kid no but if i got in trouble there were consequences and parents need to realize at times 
their kids are going to fail and you're going to love them during those failures, but they have to learn from their failures and not constantly protect them. It's everyone else's fault because what's going to happen later in life, whether it be they don't get the job they want and they don't get the girlfriend mm-hmm. or boy or girl or boy to date them, how do they deal with that? And that's what worries me. And I, I think that's why there's an increase in teenage and adolescent suicide because we're not giving kids the coping skills to deal with failures. Oh, well, they're going to run into it eventually. And if you do it, if you take that emotion from them and, and you, you bring it to yourself the entire time when they fail, they don't worry about take care of it. And this, you take that. They don't ever learn that. Eventually they will. They'll run into it. So do you want it to be a grown up baby or a, or vice versa? No matter what you do, because you just think about it, you're a parent. It's the next verse to you. Remember everything you had to go through, even if your parents tried to protect you still. They're going to have to go through it. You can either, and that's the beautiful part about being a parent is you can apply the pressure and pull it off. That's what I do with my kids when I'm training them. I train them. It's not like I'm showing them. I literally train my kids. I'm like, all right, here, training session, pay attention. This is what's going to happen. And then I will put pressure on them that I know that won't come off when they get out around somebody else. Like one day you're going to get in this. This is what it's going to feel like. I need you to know that. Don't be embarrassed. Also, the, the coolest part about having a kid, man, is you can, it teaches you more about yourself than anything because you're having to deal with yourself. The younger version, trying to communicate with it and talk to it and make sure it doesn't crap on the rug and all that. Man, just like, hey, hey, you know, straight up, man. I need to talk to you for a second. <laughs> Does that crap on the rug? You know what I mean? It's just like some of that just happens. Is this and what some you of parents it, have to deal with mm-hmm. out there? I was like, don't worry, it'll happen again when you get in college. But right now, you need to stop doing that. <laughs> right? Have fun when it's supposed to be entertaining. I mean, there are mistakes. Just as long as you know, understand that the human body can take a lot of abuse. Man, it's made to fall down. So it can get back up, bounces back up when you're that age. Then you get to our age, it starts making weird noises and things start creaking. just like an old worn out truck. But at the age they are with that race car frame on, it's like, man, you, and they're getting that right when they hit puberty, that racing fuel's getting dumped in it. You might want to kind of control the driver. Hey, look, man, you're about to take off here. I just want you to know that this is going to get crazy. I'm here for you. All right. Talk about anything. Padlock that door again. I'll bust your ass. Don't ever, you know what I'm saying? It's well, just if like you that, prepared man. him for that. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know what we like to do? We like to do at the end of our interviews uh, when we're winding it down is ask our guests for a couple pieces of advice and they can be related to what we've talked about. They could be completely have nothing to do with anything we said, but a couple things that have served you well in your life have come back time and time again. Just little snapshots that you can hand out little bits of wisdom. Anything come to mind? You know, the one thing um, that I, I truly believe is all of us are going to face obstacles in our life, and you've got to decide how you're going to deal with those. And as I pointed out earlier, don't dwell upon the negative and build upon the positive. And I think so many times mm-hmm. in our lives, we spend 95% of the time dealing with 5% of the people that are negative that we're never going to change. And to me, that's wasted energy. And one of the things that I was looking for when I was hiring people at Columbine, I was looking for energy givers and not energy takers because those energy takers mm. just drain an organization. They drain a team. And so you surround yourself. And it's and to me, what I think life is all about, whether it's in the military, whether it's political, in schools, at home, it's all about relationships. And that is so important. But people need to know you care. And, and I think that's the most important mm. thing. And 
as a leader at Columbine High School, there were principals in this state, in this country that were a lot smarter than I am, and they could do research, research, and data, and they could just, they were brilliant. But I think Mm. you talk to any of my students that 10,000 people I call my kids over my 35 years career, they knew how much I cared about them, how much I loved. And I think that's the important thing. Don't underestimate that. And I tell administrators, they need to know that you care. And it was interesting. People always ask me, what kind of leader was I before the tragedy? I said, the same people after. The kids knew I cared about them. And it didn't take a tragedy Mm. to happen in their lives to say, well, DeAngelis had to lose 13 kids and all these kids injured before we knew we cared. They knew I cared before the tragedy. They knew I cared after. And I'm going to continue to care their entire life. They'll always be my kids. That's powerful. You know, you, you remind me of when I think back of who I remember from my experience coming up through school, and it was the teachers, it was the authority figures that made that human connection. It wasn't necessarily the ones that knew the most facts or perhaps were able to write the most uh, detailed, in-depth book on a certain topic. It was the ones that really made a connection, um, handed down, you know, bits of wisdom about life and guidance that, uh, that stuck with me. You know, uh, Marcus teacher drug me out in the high school in, in the hall in seventh grade. I got in trouble. I'll never forget. He asked me what kind of Texan I was going to be. I was like, oh, no, I'll show you. It, it, you know, high school is tough, man. <laughs> it's, 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 thank you, Mr. Jones. I appreciate that, sir. It's, it's it, imagine this is like one big orchard. We let anybody in here. You can pick from the orchard all you want as long as you work it. We don't like you coming in here and just eating from our tree. I mean, I heard people say, you know, money grows on trees in the United States. Kind of does, right? You're not allowed to pick from it unless you go out there and work the orchard. You know, you, you just come, you don't do anything to make yourself better. Then you're not really going to get anywhere. And, and the easiest way to do that is with the people around you, man. And what you've done and being an administrator and principal and some of the stuff that you've had to go through to keep those kids together in that school running says, Everything we need to know about you, sir. You're a great man, and thank you for coming out here and doing this and giving us your time and, and, and some of your wisdom. It's been a, an extreme honor, truthfully. It's my pleasure, and keep spreading the word. And for anyone out there going through some tough times, uh, you know, we were there 20 years ago, and we're stronger mm-hmm. than we were, and there's hope. So never give up hope and build upon the positive things, and you'll get there. Amen. Can you tell us before you go – what exactly you're involved in right now or where people you'd like to direct their attention to any particular organizations and maybe follow you and what you're up to? Yeah. You know, I have a, a book that just came out on March uh, 31st. It's called, they call me Mr. D and it's uh, the story of Columbine's heart resilience and recovery. And it really shows how this community, it really touched upon so many of the things we talked about today, my upbringing who, you know, made me who I am. And then the Columbine tragedy, it doesn't talk a lot about that day, but the aftermath. And I think it gives hope to people. It talks about my faith. And one of the things that was so important to me is, unfortunately, so many times we know the names of the killers, but we don't know the names of the victims. And this book, really, Mm -hmm. when you finish reading this book, you'll know the 13 who so tragically lost their lives, which was important to me. And then programs that are near and dear to my heart, all the proceeds from the sales of the book, all my proceeds are going to go to the Columbine Memorial, which is a memorial in honor of the 13, memorializes the 13, and then all the people who were deeply impacted. Then there's a couple of organizations, uh, the Frank D'Angelo's Academic Fund, money's going to go to help 
future students, Columbine students. And then there's a training program that is for SWAT team. There's been Navy SEALs, and it's called the Frank D'Angelo Center for Community Safety. And so now what happens is SWAT team members could go in. Navy SEALs came in to go through these trainings within a building. And so what we're doing is training people that are going to protect our kids. So those are three programs near and dear to my heart. So I'm hoping, you know, the book is successful so it could help those programs. Well, you, sir, are, have a comprehensive uh, approach to really giving back and trying to solve, just assist people in either recovering or preventing in the future. Uh, it, you're an impressive guy. Oh, God. <laughs> Tell my wife that, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. <clears throat> we'll, we'll pull it close on this but th- thank you we're closing out I'll, like i say well, this i after, do want to say one more thing yeah, yeah finish up i just i just want to tell you that uh, you know we started this out and you said thank you you, t- you said to me thank you for your support well i want to say to you for thank you for all the work you're doing because you are really uh you're one of those people that has been out there on the front lines of in charge of bringing up one of our most precious resources in this country, our assets, uh, is, is our future, which is the children and the people who will eventually take our place. So thank you, sir, for your service. And I'm, Again, I can't state this. I admire you. You're my heroes in everything you do each and every day. And I know when I'm out and about in the airport, I thank the veterans just for all you've done for us. You, you give us everything we need. And I... I am eternally grateful, and thank you, and you're not told enough. Oh, well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, it's a two-way street. Yep. It goes both ways. Yep. So thank you. Uh, we probably could have gone for, for two more hours, but uh, maybe we'll catch up with you again sometime. I'm looking it. forward to checking out your book. Maybe when is the book? Is it, is it, is it out yet? Has it, it been out, released? Uh, the 31st of March, so it's out there. Yeah, so uh, Thir- oh, you okay. can get so it on Amazon.com, uh, uh, Barnes & Noble. And, but it is. I think uh, it really it's a, it's a, really tells the story, and it's not about me necessarily. It's about our community in a community that was able to come through one of the worst tragedies in high school or in school history, violence and to overcome that. And I think it's a book of hope. And so uh, that's what I hope it shares. And at the same time, you know, with the 13 who lost their lives and the people who were injured and deeply impacted, we'll never, it's a, always a time to remember, but also Columbine represents hope. So that's what I hope comes across in the book. Well, excellent. And again, that's, they call me Mr. D. Right. Go get it. Hey, uh, great job on everything that you've done. I'm serious. And, uh, Man, there's some there's some wonderful things going on in this world, and it's worth fighting for and stamping in front of every time, uh, good, bad, or indifferent, to uh, to face down some things like some lions that are that can show up at the drop of a hat. And you did that, and you've done a lot of things through your entire life that are so exceptional that man, we're just honored to have you on here. And and keep the faith, and uh, keep doing what you're doing, brother man. Seriously, you. Uh, you have touched a lot of lives, and you are a special person. Never forget that. Well, thank you. You know, and, I, I, and one last thing, you know, I feel things happen in our life, and God's got a plan, and we don't even know what it is. But, uh, you know, he gave me a platform to try to make better uh, this world better than what it was on April 20th, and I'm going to continue to do that. And I know God's got a plan for all of us, and he puts you doing what you're doing because you guys are making a difference. But God bless all of you. Thank you, sir. Amen. It's been an honor. My pleasure. Thank you. Blessings.
Mr. D. Wow. Marcus, that is a guy that is a guy full of wisdom, isn't he? Oh yeah, he's been around. You tell somebody who has that much wisdom, they means they spent a lot of time around all ages of people. <laughs> Mainly ki- young younger kids, right? When you when you have that level of patience. I think that's the difference between teachers and everybody else is is literally patience. The rest of us, you know, we have hmm. to get disciplined. Something hard happens, patience wears off, goes out the window, and, and then discipline drops in with, with them, man. With being with a child, that's learn that when you're a parent, and you can't hmm. appreciate it being an aunt or an uncle. I mean, it's literally when the, it's your responsibility. And it, the teachers and the principals at the school, I mean, basically, when I drop my kid off there, I'm entrusting them like I trust myself to take care of my kid and mm-hmm. you know keep them safe and educate them. There's a lot. That's a lot of responsibility that we give to yeah. to our educators which is why i mean they they earn it they train our kids that's why they're so important to i don't think i i had personally because you know i'm not in that mindset i'm not a parent i don't think i had personally given enough thought and consideration to the depth at which that responsibility and all the different areas that you have to be concerned with in that responsibility as a principal or administrator of a school like that. Sure, when you're going through school. Than just making sure the teachers show up on time and start math class. Yeah. And, oh, yeah, and man. Sending, uh, uh, my experience with principals was generally related to getting sent home. <laughs> well, when you're in a school on that side of it, it's, you have no idea. You're on the receiving end of it, just the education, <laughs> right? You, you don't see the backstory of, of everything. I mean, it runs just like each school, I would imagine, runs just like a ship. Has to, from the from the captain in the principal's office all the mm-hmm. way and then you got the galley and uh, all, the decks all that stuff so um he saw what was presented to himself and he he could have gone either way with that he could have left and got out of teaching and all together and let that affect him or he just learned the valuable lesson from it that hard times kind of identify you uh, and what you are and and what you're here for and you know his faith drives him and so do so do his people and they're most importantly our children and he was not just someone that was brought in to help uh, heal the situation and bring the community and the school back on track. No, uh-uh. He lived through it himself right, yeah, as yep. well, you know, and in a very personal no, way. Very much a part of it. Which just makes the whole thing, you know, his performance even more commendable. Um, one point, this keeps coming up, but it's, I don't know if we can hammer it home enough, the absolute necessity at times of being able to seek, you know, counseling support. And effectiveness of when it comes from someone who's lived through a similar scenario sure the psychiatrist psychologist people that have, you know they want you to come talk to them because it makes you feel better and I was, that's what it does that's what having everybody around you to be able to talk through the situations because after going through a crisis like that man mm-hmm. usually everybody's going to have something going on they're at, all, at the very least they're going to have some questions and the best way to get everything out in the open is to ask questions and if you're in that position of leadership, that's how you do it. You ask the questions automatically assuming if something's affecting you, then it's affecting everybody else because you're the leader. So when you when you do that, when you open up and say, hey, anybody's doing, dealing with this, this is what's going on, this is how we'll get through it, and, and walk them through it step by step like he's done, and then create those pipelines after you've mm-hmm. been through them. It just goes to follow that as, as by nature human beings being the gregarious creatures that we are, that we're going to need to communicate with one another. For all sorts of reasons, and in this case, uh, in order to heal. We just saw this with Ad- the whole Adam Davis conversation, the necessity of that with uh, law enforcement and, and dealing with the difficulties they go through. So I just want to thank, thank Mr. D for uh, coming out. Again, his book, They Call Me Mr. D, it's out there. 
Go check that out. It's going to be well worth your time. And thank the man for sitting down and talking to us. I mean, it was an honor, and I know I took a lot away from that. Yep, Mr. D, thank you so much for coming on here. We, we really do appreciate it, and, and please never stop uh, teaching us. Before we wrap this up, though, we got a ride-in story. We got some housekeeping before that. Oh, yep, Roger that. Let's do that. So uh, if you want to listen to this show or you want to tell somebody else how to listen to it, first of all, there's plenty of places they can do it. They can go directly to the website, tnqpodcast.com, tnqpodcast.com. You can listen to everything that we have done to this point that we've shared with the public, at least. (laughs) (laughs) Right there, immediately and for free. If not there, you can find it on virtually any other podcast app for iPhone or Android, the iTunes, Stitcher, Podesty, CastBox, Radio Public, any of those. Or you can check us on social media at Team Never Quit. Find and follow all of our major social media outlets at Instagram. It's TNQ Podcast, Marcus at Marcus Luttrell, and Wizard at the underscore Wizard underscore TNQ. All right, and... Once again, let's talk a little bit more about TNQPodcast.com. You can listen to all our episodes, everybody from David Goggins to Mike Rowe, Missy Franklin, Dakota Myers, Sir Robert Young Pelton, Sir Robert your Young buddy Pelton. Mark Wahlberg, Captain Charlie Plum. God, what an incredible individual. Captain yeah, right. Charlie Plum, Andre Agassi, Laird Hamlin. There's so many on there. Merchandise, we sell pretty much everything you need to look cool, or at least uh, <laughs> advertise how cool you already are. Either way, go get yourself a several great t-shirt designs and hats for sale over there. One of our favorite sections, as well as everybody else's listener write-in stories. We encourage anybody who listens to this show to write in and tell us your personal story because it's going to be shared with anybody else that goes on the site, right? Um, You can find a way to submit or read these stories. We have hundreds hundreds of them on there now. It is under the menu tab, Share Your Story. Right on, brother. All right, you ready to get to this reader story? Can't wait. This is from Kieran in Australia. Before I begin, I would like to thank you, Marcus, and the wizard. You're welcome, brother. You're welcome. (laughs) What you have all done defending for our country and the world and for enriching the lives of all of us who listen to the TNQ podcast. Sincerely, thank you. Thank you for saying so. My life has been blessed. I led a childhood where I was raised by a single mother who worked three jobs to make sure I was always fed, clothed, and happy. Through her, I learned the value of hard work and sacrifice and put my family first, always. I spent many weekends with her parents, whom I'd thank the Lord for daily. They illustrated discipline and stubbornness into me. Mom, <laughs> mom, mom met the man I called dad when I was six, and he taught, me to be, he taught me compassion and to be mindful. Like I said, I led a blessed childhood, became a big brother at the age of eight and again at the age of nine, played many sports and have made lifelong friendships, but was never tested. This changed at the ripe old age of 24 when I collapsed while training with my AFL team. When I awoke, I was staring at the lights on the far side of the field and had no idea what had just happened. I was sent straight to the hospital where I was told I would be kept overnight for observation and would meet with the cardiologist the next day. Little did I know this would be the beginning of a very long week. After seeing the cardiologist, I was told they would keep me for a couple more days for tests. These would include multiple cardio stress tests, echocardiograms, and blood tests galore. With each set of results, the doctor seemed perplexed. Nothing stood out as remarkable, a term I have learned that is not so good in doctor speak. They went as far it's never as good a cat- to see, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like, doctor, what do you think of this? I don't know. Hmm. Have you seen that commercial where that guy goes, guess who got his license back? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Have you seen that? I think it's a Geico commercial. Those are great. Are you nervous? And he's like, Paige is like, yeah. He goes, yeah, me too. That'll be all right, though. <laughs> they went as far as a cath. They went as far as catheter exploration, shoving a long ass set of wires in my groin up to my heart and playing with it like a steel drum. Still nothing. After what I thought would be a normal MRI, cardiop- cardiomyopathy, my first thought was WTF. What does that mean? Instead of asking the question, I just nodded my head. I had no idea what it meant. And for the next 10 to 15 minutes, the doctors explained the condition to me and my parents. They explained that I had beat the odds. They explained that I had collapsed from an episode known as a prolonged ventricular tachycardia. This kills 9 in 10 people who collapse from it. Also... Hydrotrophic cardiomyopathy is hard to diagnose, and only 8 of 10 people are diagnosed post-mortem. Damn odds were against me, but all I took out of the talk was that the next day I was going to be getting an ICD, an internal cardiac defibrillator, placed in my chest. After the tsunami of information had stopped, and I asked for only one question, when can I go back to the football and CrossFit? The doctor looked puzzled. I assumed they had been able to, uh, I assumed they had already been able to exercise but will not be able to return to these types of sports again i am sorry this is hard to hear but i refuse to show how much it hurt me not until the middle of the night when i thought i was alone i broke tears flowing from my eyes like water pouring from a fire hose as i laid there in my hospital bed alone sobbing i hear this voice not one from someone physically present it was an internal voice and all it said was are you a lion or a sheep I was confused, but I heard it again. Are you a lion or are you a sheep? Are you going to accept this death that easy? At that very moment, a switch went off in my head. I was not going to accept the doctor's opinion, not for a second. For as well as for as well educated as they are, there was one thing they didn't know about me. That one thing only I know, and I know me. I know that I would rather risk it all to return to my beloved AFL and CrossFit, because if I didn't try then, to me I had accepted death, and I am not ready to die. Six years on from that decision, I have successfully returned to both, and in September 2018 won a premier scholarship with my AFL team. In October 2018, I ticked off another achievement after losing 52 pounds. In a year, I weighed in at 211 pounds. For the first time in my adult life, I was under 220 pounds. I still go for my cardiology checkups each year, and I still am told to not compete in both sports. But my cardiologist now knows that I choose to be the only abnormality, and I choose to work hard to beat the textbook odds. I know now that my childhood had unwittingly prepared me to be a fighter and to never quit just because someone else thinks I can't do it. There's a line in a song that I have used to get me through all these tough days since, and I have told it to those who I've spoken to going through their own adversities. Every day, every hour, turn your pain into power. I'm going to read it again. Every day, every hour, turn your pain into power. That's a pretty good one. <laughs> this is my hashtag never quit story, and I hope it can someday inspire even just one person to never quit either. Well, Karen. You just did, man. I'm pretty sure. So, great oh, yeah, job. Buddy. And uh, we all have to... Like, oh, yeah. it's broken. If you break this thing down into two 40-year segments, and you, one, one side of it's going to have to be tough, either your childhood or being an adult, or sometimes both, depending on what you got burned inside of you and, and who you're trying to become. And 
it, it all catches up with us, and the fact that you, you recognize that makes it all the more important. So, so good job, man, on, on everything that you've done, and, um, and thank you again for writing in. Karen, I think that's fantastic that, uh, first of all, you you know what you want. You're not afraid to go get it. You have a passion to pursue, and, and beyond that, you have not allowed the limiting beliefs of other people to, uh, you've not taken that on board and you have just broken right through it and you're just running your hair on fire. I love it. I do too. Both of you, Karen and Mr. D. I mean, two different type of environments all together, but both of you are warriors through and through and, and you've proven that throughout your life. So man, great job. Sometimes we face those adversities in the front or on the backside, whichever side it falls on, just be ready for it and accept it because it's a part of life. And you guys are living examples of that. So thank you so much. Thank you, God. Jesus Christ for letting us do this. To all of our fans who kept bringing us back. Uh, to my wife for letting us do this all the time in the house, man. Mel, I, I love thank you, your wife, Yeah, no kidding, man. She's, she's awesome. So <laughs> we're out. We're out of here.